Ben Schwartz's career spans IT to telecoms and the evolving media landscape. His journey continued at Orange for almost another decade, where he played a pivotal role in the convergence of telecoms with the internet and spearheaded numerous media-focused initiatives. I started by asking Ben to give me a bit of background on the evolution of the G's, the generations of mobile transmission and bandwidth. The G's, as very unsurprisingly and unoriginally stand for generations. Uh, so we're going to be talking much of today about 5G. 5G, you can just read, is the fifth generation of mobile networks. It's quite an orderly process. Surprisingly, every 10 years, almost like clockwork, we've had a new generation. So if you count backwards uh, over all the Gs, you'll start one G uh, in the 80s. Uh, I think it was 1978, the first commercial rule. But basically, the first generation of mobile networks ran for 10 years. Uh, it was an analog voice-only service at the time, uh, reserved obviously for a few very rich people <laughs> and businesses. But that was the first generation. And then we started, the general public started being made a bit more aware in the 90s, in the second generation, that was the 2G networks. Uh, and there was a little bit of data there, it wasn't just voice, and we'd moved over to digital. So that was 10 years on in the 90s. And it went on till about 1998, I think, when, when 3G started being launched around the world. 3G, the third generation, is probably the, the real beginning of what we called the mobile internet because there was a, there was enough data to actually do stuff and uh, that's when uh, Steve Jobs thought oh maybe the mobile internet is worth launching a new phone for that's when the iPhone started in 2007 just before 3G came out um, and so uh, it was the second iPhone that used the 3G network um, and that was throughout the noughties um, went on until 4G which is the current generation that many countries still have um, which has been running for over 10 years. And that has significantly, it has 50 times more data than 3G had. It can go up to 100 megabits when, when you have all the data to yourself, of your, the cell you're in. And uh, that was 10 years. And uh, we're seeing now the launch of this new generation, which we're going to be talking about, Jerry, which is 5G, the fifth generation. There's two big, big changes with 5G. Again, the, the, the bandwidth. Uh, again, multiplying by over 10, moving from 100 megabits to up to 20 gigabits per second. And the other big difference with 5G is this thing we call latency. The 5G network is the first mobile network with a very low latency. Let's look a little bit at the architecture. You know, what makes this possible? What's the physical environment that makes this possible? Things like, you know, base stations and, and and the overall infrastructure that needs to be put in place to, to allow this mobile network to operate. The way all the generations so far have worked is they have this concept of a base station. So every mobile device is connected to the nearest base station. Um, and then that base station will be connected uh, to the overall internet uh, and other networks. Um, but the connection between the mobile device and the base station is a radio connection. We can start with one of the big issues to do with uh, energy and uh, CO2 emissions. One of the problems with traditional base stations, so a base station will be at the bottom of a mast, there'll be a sort of some kind of big cabinet 
where there'll be a whole load of equipment to manage the energy, potentially some cooling if needed. Um, there'll be some computer sort of digital processing stuff there to connect to the rest of the network uh, and do various tasks. And then there'll be what uses a lot of energy, the most energy then will go up a, a long cable up to the top of the mast to, to where the aerials are. And one of the issues here, which we're going to come to a lot, is this idea that all these things have to be designed to handle their maximum capacity. When an operator puts a base station in, they're going to say, okay, well, up to how many simultaneous mobile devices do I need to cater for in this space? If their calculations say, well, the maximum I need to do simultaneously is 100,000, and this or, then they will build it for that. And the power consumption will be a direct relation to that it will not have any the power consumption is not really linked to the usage of networks when you build network infrastructure of any kind really you have to create the radio waves and that uses a certain amount of energy and then once those radio waves are are, are going through the ether that's what we call the space between between devices they're using up the energy whether there's any data in them or not uh, most people have a Wi-Fi router in their home. That Wi-Fi router will typically consume about 15 watts in real time. So if you leave it running for an hour, that's 15 watt hours. The difference between when the Wi-Fi network is empty or when it is completely full is maximum 10 or 12%. If it uses, say, 14 watts ticking along with nothing on the network, and then you load it up to its maximum capacity, it'll start using 16, 17 watts. And you get the same thing with all network equipment. Let me unpack a little bit of that. So if if a network designer uh, was designing cars, they'd essentially design cars that they'd be using the maximum uh, acceleration, the maximum speed. So the engine would be working at, let's say, 120 miles per hour, even if you were wor- moving at two miles per hour. Is that essentially how a network works from an energy uh, point of view? You've thrown a curved one ball at me because <laughs> I've never thought about that example, but I think it's correct. I- I'll need to think about that a bit more. It's always been an interesting thing that uh, said, people would say to me, oh, it's not about the data. It doesn't matter, um, you know, if you're putting one megabyte or a thousand megabytes. And and technically that's true. But the only, the reason it's true is because of the outrageously inefficient design of, of the system and the extraordinarily wasteful uh, design of the system that, you know, if you, if you had an oven that went up to whatever 300 degrees, even if you were cooking something at 40 degrees, it would still be maxed at 300 degrees. So they'd be say, why, why not cook stuff at the maximum? You know, so it's a kind of pushing stuff to the absolute maximum rather than the energy gradating upwards with the use. It's 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 always maxed out, which I, when you... Yeah, yeah I, I, you're quite right. But uh, there's a there's another issue here is that um, it, it, it's not really by design. The, the issue, as I understand it, is that over the last few decades, the design and implementation of equipment, whether it's for use by telecom operators or people in their homes, when it's stuff that gets plugged into a wall, we've never really worried long-term about energy consumption. And so when when there's a device that 
typically will use, I'll just use 100 watts, just a nice 100. And, and, and there's some feature that the designers could put in that would go from 100 to 99 watts. Uh, but it, it's a little bit of a ball for them. And it means that users then have a slightly bigger device or something. Well, no, we won't bother. And the strange thing, Jerry, is that it is completely the opposite in mobile devices. When you, when you have Samsung that is, you know, the, the seller of, uh, of mobile phones that kind of competes most with Apple and their iPhone, they spent literally hundreds of millions of dollars researching how to get one extra milliwatt out of their battery life, because that is a hugely competitive edge. If, they, if their battery, if one phone maker can say, my phone lasts an hour longer than the competitor's phone, people are going to want to buy that phone. And so there, there's a huge, there's been an incentive and these things take a long time. This incentive has been there for like 20 years. And so when you pick up a mobile device in your hand now, a phone, you can be assured that everything has been designed to get the most efficiency possibly energy-wise. And so when you compare devices and you try and understand in our, our overall digital lives where the energy is being used, actually, mobile devices don't use much energy. They create a huge, and you say so a lot, Jerry, and I agree with you, they create huge amounts of CO2. They're, they're dreadful devices. That's because we don't keep them for very long. That's because there's so many rare earth materials go into them. There's lots of reasons why they're really, really bad for the environment. But strangely, not energy. They're exceedingly energy efficient. And that's something that somehow we'd have to find a feedback loop so that the designers of the equipment that gets plugged into the grid are also so careful about every milliwatt. Because if you take, I talked about Wi-Fi before, there's over 1 billion home Wi-Fi routers in the world. Just imagine if the designers cared about every milliwatt. You know, a milliwatt times a billion is 10 megawatts. Uh, Those billion uh, routers, Wi-Fi routers, roughly um, on average, how much power are they drawing an hour a day? They're, they range between ones that are in the market today. The, the, the more, most efficient ones are about 15 watts uh, in real time. So 15 watt hours while they're, while they're alive, uh, while, while they're running, up to about 30 watts, 15 to 30. Those are the 1 billion devices. Right. So right. that is equivalent to driving around the world with an electric vehicle 6 million times. You made a fascinating point, and it's a kind of, I think this is something... I've discovered in all my research over the last number of years is that we, with the exception of, of the battery in the mobile phone, which you can totally understand why there's a, there's a real compelling, but in large other parts of our lives, we, we live on a, well, we, all, we always lived on a finite planet, but we live like we live on a, with uh, infinite access to energy and, and essentially energy at, at zero cost, uh, either, you know, tosser to the environment that we essentially design so many things, uh, certainly in, in the digital realm, as if uh, energy is limitless and energy is is costless. Yeah, well, th th that speaks exactly what I was saying, that, that, that we have to find the inspiration from um, the way the mobile phones were designed. And strangely, there is an actual exciting example which shows us sometimes big companies which many people will say have an evil streak to them <laughs> can do good things 
Uh, But in this case, I think for the completely wrong reasons. So I just want to talk for one second about the latest generation of MacBooks. So this the company, obviously, is Apple, which not many people will think of as a a great defender of uh, of the planet um, and being a very green company. But they actually have launched a whole set of MacBooks, all the new MacBooks based on the M1, the M2 chips. They are exceedingly energy efficient. And this is a strange side effect. I believe they're doing it because, you know, they want to fight. They used to work with Intel, which does some very inefficient chips and um, uh, the power used to power the the MacBooks. Uh, And it's partly to to just be more autonomous and to earn more money, basically, and not give any money to a third company. So they're using their own hardware, their own central CPUs, central processing units. So so that's the, the brain inside the computer. Now, you just got to understand the old versions of uh, CPUs that used to be in the MacBooks, they come from the world of computing, where things were always plugged in, and we didn't really care about power consumption. Whereas the M1, M2, they come, they're a, they're a variation of what Apple had been designing for their iPhones. So as I said earlier, anything that goes into a mobile phone is heavily optimized for energy use um, because that's a constraint there. Uh, and so what we're seeing now is that you can actually get exceedingly powerful, fast computers that don't use much power. Uh, and um, a new MacBook uses like two or three times less power than, than the older ones. So, so just to say that this idea, yes, is a problem for anything that's plugged into the grid. People still to say that the, 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 when you go out to a store and buy something in a shop that has a power cord that's going to be plugged into the grid, you can pretty much bet that the energy, it was designed as if energy was free. How can we leverage uh, those decades of design that's been done in areas where energy has been important? Because if we all start from scratch now, building new devices, new cars, new everythings where energy is important, it'll take us quite a few years. Whereas if we just look to what some other industries have done, we've got a, a, a lot of catching up to do. There's a really interesting point there about the Apple uh, M1 and maybe bringing it back to 5G as well to the these new base stations that um, are much smaller and they can fit on a lamppost. But from what, what I was reading, and I, I've read up about the M1 as well, about the base stations is they're not really designed to be recyclable. They're not, they're not, you know, I don't know about the repairability, but I know about the repairability of the M1. It's extremely poor because yeah. it's it's a it's a brick. It's essentially uh, totally integrated. So if anything goes wrong, um, you you almost have to throw the entire device away. So there's this trade off, and I think there's these. We're always looking for one number. We're always looking for oh, it's the climate, it's it's mm. it's the energy. But sometimes making making something more energy efficient actually has a larger negative impact in another area, such as um, e-waste pollution or the ability that device to last, you know, um, ten years instead of two yeah. years or or three years. So. We do have this a kind of, it seems like one of the arguments with the battery, uh, the the European Union saying now that we got they got to have a, a a rechargeable battery. You got to be able to take your battery out. Well, it's you're going to have 
better performance and probably energy efficiency with a welded in battery than um, a battery that must be removed. So there's there are these trade-offs uh, between we need to balance many factors, don't we? It's not it's not simply the energy. We're not just destroying the world from global warming. I mean, yeah. there's, there's so many know. areas. 5G is actually significantly more energy efficient than all of its predecessors. Um, I believe, I'm not an expert here, so so I'll let um, uh, listeners put some comments in if I've got this wrong, but I believe that what's happened basically, as with all previous generations and most new technology that is designed by over many years with thousands of people, is that there was a huge amount of things that could have gone into 5G uh, and the energy side of it wasn't necessarily that important in the early days of 5G. But then this general, um, the general acquiescence, the glo- global heating has started that there is a bit of an o- emergency here and we've got to fix things, uh, ha- has kind of made all the vendors sort of bring up those energy saving parts of 5G. Uh, and one thing I, uh, uh, it's worth talking about. We, well, we were still in the early parts about base stations, for example, in the old days of first and second generation, they quickly came to this thing. They called them all in one base stations, um, where it would just be one sort of huge suitcase that would be put somewhere and it would have everything in it. Now we're moving much more to what we're calling distributed architectures, uh, where you kind of separate I said earlier on that the analog radio part of things actually is very power hungry. Um, so you, if you can separate everything that manages the radio functions from all the digital signal processing, that means you can put that uh, analog uh, features much closer to the aerial. So if you see in more recent uh, things, you sometimes see uh, cabinet cases down there, but there's also some boxes higher up, <laughs> halfway up the mast. Uh, so we're separating the functions in different parts. Um, and so we are gaining a bit more flexibility uh, and having less power loss uh, than we would uh, in previous generations. And there's this new thing. I know that you have a lot to say about the cloud in general, but we we call the cloud, there's this word called the cloud RAN. So RAN, I sorry, my apologies, I didn't introduce that word. So if you ever want to read up about networks and mobile networks, you have to understand the acronym RAN. R-A-N, that stands for Radio Access Network. That's the part of the network that governs up all of that, uh, you know, most of the energy. So saying that it's the radio part of it. Um, just to give you some pointers, um, the comparison between a fixed line network and a radio-based network, so radio will consume five times more than a, than a, than a line-based network, and it goes up to about 20 between 5 and 20, so it's, it is it's um, it is massive, that difference. And there is something which I think has a huge potential. We still have to see how it's going to be deployed, but it's uh, it's actually something quite easy for non-techies to understand. It's, it's just called sleep mode, and it's something that's uh, desperately needed in Wi-Fi networks in homes. Uh, it doesn't, there's hardly anything there. But on mobile networks, it's coming in with 5G, and the idea is basically there it would address what we were talking about a few minutes ago, Jerry, the idea that, you know, you have to, you, you, your, your network is designed to, for its full capacity. And then when you're not using the full capacity, you can turn some components off. Um, so, so, so typically, if you look at things like um, broadcast networks, 
for TV or something. You know, the biggest live event we had recently was the World Cup last November. And, you know, all the networks were, were pushed up, were cranked up to be able to cope for their millions or tens or hundreds of millions, depending on the market of people simultaneously watching. And now we're sort of, so what, what are we now, nine months on? Uh, and none of those networks has been dismantled or, or, or the energy being, the energy is not being saved there either. So, so, so that is something that should be able to happen to a certain extent with 5G networks. Um, where the network will kind of go to sleep partially, partially. Uh, and this is something I trust you'll bring us to talk about, Jerry, is the, is the user and the usability of networks and any digital service, because that's going to be a compromise. If you think of it, whether it's a mobile 5G network or your Wi-Fi network at home, if you want to be conscious of the environment and to save energy, um, and bits of it to go to sleep, well, then as a user, when you pull out your phone, and you start dialing a number, are you okay if nothing happens for two seconds? I'm sure everyone would say, fine. Okay, then, if nothing happens for 10 seconds, uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, what about if nothing happens for two minutes? If it takes two minutes to work. Uh, actually, no, then it's not really a mobile network. If there is to be other generations, the environmental footprint of these networks should be intrinsically designed as the most important thing, not just as a... As a as an afterthought, as one of the constraints among many, which which it still was for 5G. I want to go back to this, um, the energy efficiency thing of 5G. So on a unit efficiency for transferring, say, one uh, gigabyte of data, 5G is more efficient than 4G. But won't the overall network be consuming and already is consuming where it's in operation or certainly from what I've read, more overall energy because there is the expectation that you'll be moving vastly more data down the network. So there's this, I think one of the, the great um, challenges or flaws in modern economics and modern society has been the focus on unitary efficiency because we always get mo overall more uh, and the overall energy footprint goes up. But the engineers are saying, yes, but on a unitary basis, it's better. Yes, but your overall energy consumption is 5x what it was in the previous. And isn't, mm. isn't that the real story that we're always boasting about unitary efficiency when the overall uh, energy demand is doubling, quadrupling uh, in in many instances. Yeah, well, I, I, I assume you've, on previous issues of your podcast, you've talked about the Jevons effect or the rebound effect, because that's that's what we're really addressing here, isn't it? Yeah, so, so Jevons was an economist in the 19th century, and he, he made this amazing uh, observation. There, it was the the steam engine was kind of enabling the industrial revolution and everything was going hunky-dory. Uh, they kind of hit a roadblock in that uh, things started not being able to improve much because uh, the, you couldn't get enough coal into the steam engine. It just consumed so much that the, that became the, 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 the critical resource. And so, you know, everything was dependent. How much coal can we transport? And then... Uh, Watts came up and invented a new steam engine, a hugely improved one, that was um, orders of magnitude more efficient than using coal. 
And so the expectation was, okay, well, we'll see what else is going to be. What are, what are, what are we short of next? Because now we've solved the coal, coal problem because our, our engines need so much less coal. And actually, coal stayed the problem because what happened is that if you think of, say, a, a railway line pulled by a steam train, it, I don't have the actual numbers, but say, you know, the train had to stop every two or three miles, uh, three or four kilometers to, to fill up. Well, all of a sudden it could do 20, 30, 40 kilometers before filling up. And then all of a sudden it made sense to run trains right across countries, which it didn't before. It only made sense to run, you know, from relatively close cities to each other. You, you never had very long train lines. And all of a sudden we had these long train lines and steam engines inside factories could do all sorts of things they couldn't do before. Um, so that's where the, the, the Jevons effect, that's where the, the, the word comes from. And we also call it the rebound effect. 5G enables us to carry bits, as we said, a bit more efficiently. Uh, and so a lot more of them. And as perhaps we'll get to in a minute, a lot faster with this, this idea of latency. So enabling all that is going to create theory. Tell, uh, history tells us, well, it should create demand. And it'll all fill up. Uh, and so however big you make the pipes, they're always going to be a little bit too small. That's what's happened to us over the last few decades. And maybe while you're at it there, you mentioned latency. Uh, so t tell us a little bit about that. So latency is um technical thing. You all remember those sum submarine films, you know, where the hunt for Red, Red October or something, when, when submarines are sort of hunting each other or, or, or hunting ships or whatever. You, you get this dramatic moment in the film and everybody goes quiet and you have the specialist who puts on his headphones and you hear these ping, ping, and he waits for the echo and he listens to it. That, that He's measuring latency there. So you're sending a sound out to somebody, it's reaching them, it's bouncing back off them and it comes back. So technically that's what latency is. How long it takes me to reach some, some other device and for the answer to come back. Uh, it's occasionally confused with uh, delay. So you, people talk about video latency. That doesn't make any sense. It's video delay. The latency is really how long it takes to go from point A to point B and then back again without doing anything, just saying, so But the latency between you and me, Jerry, we could work it out. If I say, hey, Jerry, you say, hi, Ben. And it's how long it took me to hear the answer. Okay. That, that, that's the technical measurement of latency. Why is it important? Um, technically today, um, it's not. It's only really important for hardcore gamers. Then there's some really old use cases, which honestly, I think a lot of us are a bit fed up of because we've heard of, heard them being the future of, uh, of humanity for decades. So the things like telemedicine, this idea that one day you're going to have a surgeon uh, in one part of the world who's going to save somebody's life by real time operating a robot that would, 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 you know, do perform open heart surgery on somebody on the other side of the world because there's only one specialist that can do it. I'm sure there will be a time in humanity's uh, future where something like that will, will, will indeed happen. But I mean, we're talking about, you know, edge cases that doesn't really concern all of us. Then latency could come in and open another new field of thing. And this is something that, uh, green act activists and people who are trying to save the planet need to think a little bit carefully before saying, oh, let's get rid of 5G, we don't need all of this stuff, is something like traffic management. I mean, if we are going to carry on having automobiles, uh, whether they're private or whether they start becoming shared makes no difference. But if there are going to be millions of us living in cities still over the next few decades, 
um, and those millions of us are going to be traveling around, transportation could be hugely enhanced by uh, very low latency communication networks that speak to each other and highly optimize things. Then there are other aspects. This isn't latency, but another aspect of 5G, which I forgot to mention in the introduction, is that its inherent uh, architecture allows it to have many more connected devices inside one cell, you know, where typically an old 3, 4G cell could cope with, say, 10,000 devices, the new one could have 100,000 devices. And that also opens up um, uh, possibilities for, for farming applications and things like that, where you could have um, uh, sensors in the soil for temperature or acidity for stuff like that. And you could have 10 or 100 of them in, a, in an organic farm of some kind. That, so you could, you know, uh, try and control the, the environment uh, Control may not be the right word, but at least you'd you'd understand what environment is real time. So there are various applications there beyond just latency, but that are to do with the, the novelty of the network. Okay, we've touched on, so we might as well dig into it a little bit now. The whole sustainability or or reason to exist, uh, so to speak, of of five G or artificial intelligence or Internet of Things or automated uh, cars. Um, so, the you know we're now into global bilingualism, as the United Nations has, has said. Um, in in that context, like if 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 you were said, you know, how do we solve these multiple crises? Because it's, it's not just global bilingualism. It's it's we've got chemical crisis, we've got soil crisis, we've got novel entities crises, we've got water crises. You know, we we're uh, of the nine boundaries or the nine mm. conditions of life, we have raced past seven of them. Uh, Nature magazine has, has said so. We are we are really hitting the environment from multiple different angles. Is you know what is five G um, something that will draw us back from this this absolute momentum we have towards? destroying the conditions for life or is it is it part of the acceleration like that it yes it enables like many people would say the the answer is is not to you know do latency for the millions of cars but to get rid of them and to get people cycling and public transport and this idea that that you know, an 80 kg mammal needs to be transported with uh, 2,000 kgs of material versus 15 kgs of material. Like, the the quantities of the demand, like I talked earlier about these base stations, they, they use loads of rare earths, etc. They're not to be d- designed to be recycled. So it's not just the energy, it's the huge material water mm. to make to make a laptop, to make a smartphone, 13,000 litres of water in the process. So tech has this incredible demand on the earth. Um, and yes, I, I work in tech, there's, there's wonderful elements. Uh, but is is this part of the race and just another part of, of the race to consume 5G artificial intelligence? Is it part of this, this larger picture where technology is essentially voracious, either for water, energy or materials, but it just consumes more and more of the Earth's environment and mm. materials. Well, a few things to say on that. On the one hand, I don't think the energy itself 
uses huge amounts of energy, water. I mean, obviously, installing it the first time will be bad for the planet. That is a that is something that we can discuss separately. But um, it's the use of it. It's whether us users at the end use it. And then I would also talk about you know it's a more powerful tool than 4G for society for whatever for whatever a network can do for us as humans. A more powerful network can do more of it. And when we use a network to do good things, to to bridge digital divides, to to reach out to 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 societies that don't have access to information, to bring democracy, to bring information, the good sides of it will be better, but the bad sides of it will be worse. It you know, five G is the same. It's like bringing something new, bringing a more powerful tool in terms of networking. Uh, whether it's good or it's bad, is completely up to the way we use it. I think that's one thing that's been lacking from our discussion so far, Terry, is is the users. They they really drive it. I mean, we look up to all these um, network companies and, you know, the latest iPhone does this and the latest that. It doesn't really matter that much. If we as people decide we're going to use this a little bit, yes, we're going to turn our Wi-Fi's off when we don't need them. I mean, that's the real thinking. Do we actually need uh, 5G? I mean, the, the question has no simple answer. I mean, clearly, the, the the overall energy consumption, that's what we've been focused on in this discussion so far, will be greater if we use more data, if we have more users on it. Um, but, you know, it, it, on the other hand, it uses less power per bit. So for a user who's very careful, someone like you, I'm sure, Jerry, um, if you end up just the way things fall in the next few years with a 5G phone on a 5G network, your digital footprint will go down uh, using that uh, device. So, so it's really up to uh, uh, up to us, I think, as uh, as users. Well, let's say yeah, and and so 4G, so 80 percent, maybe 85 percent at this stage of internet traffic is video. And I'd say the vast majority of that video is YouTube and TikTok. And it's not exactly saving the world video. It's not people figuring out how to yeah. how to save the world. It's 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 low level entertainment. Um, you know, fast, you know, you know, entertain me in the in the process. And, you know, that's what five G five G is just going to be that video VR instead of video uh, in in the process. So we clearly see today that the vast majority of stuff that's happening on the internet is is not essential to the future of life on this planet. Uh, it's it's an entertainment industry uh, essentially in, in all sorts of varying uh, forms. And there's wonderful stuff as well, but the dominant behaviours is video and the dominant types of videos are TikToks and, and YouTubes mm. in, in the process. So, you know, whether that is something that, you know, people are capable of controlling or whether you can say from the other side, you know, we, we are, our young people are being incredibly manipulated by very clever algorithms, etc. You know, at, at very early ages, um, uh, young girls, you know, depression has never been higher uh, because, you know, I mean, you look at the things like TikTok and mm. um, what what they all immediately have a filter. Uh, I don't know in 
Europe, but certainly in China, where they immediately filter the girl's face and say they they change their lips. They, cha- they yeah, that's the default. Like it's not even an option. It's you're not pretty enough, girl. We've changed you, your face, so that you look better uh, with your with your friends. So that's the reality of how much control does that young girl really have in the choices that she's going to make when there's this massive AI algorithm that is designed to manipulate her uh, and get as much money out of her as as is possible. So the, the general direction of this, and f- will 5G be more surveillance capitalism uh, in, in the process? Like, we look at the orientation of the Googles and the Facebooks, they're, they're advertising agencies their their whole 98% of facebook's revenue is ad- advertising 85% of google's revenue is advertising their whole purpose is to get us to consume and that's what 5g will be used for to increase consumption yeah. uh, so that, that that's the existential challenges i see in the the general movement of technology today as you said uh, when you introduced me, I, I wear multiple hats. And when you're speaking to the the political activist in me, I, I'm sort of screaming, of course, yes, 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 yes. Then that part of me who's a consultant who works with a lot of companies, technology companies out there, it's a little bit more more nuanced, my, my approach, because um, basically saying that most of the internet is is a waste of time, is <laughs> because you're saying that 85 percent. I think another figure that you quote often, Jerry, is 90 to 95 percent of everything we store is never ever accessed again. The same kind of numbers, you know, the the vast majority of of the data going through networks. What you're saying is not necessarily useful to mankind in the present. So therefore, should we? be implementing new tools to have more powerful networks to, to do things even better. Um, that is that is a critical point. It's very difficult to for, for, for me not to agree with you. But um, I'd just like to say, that going back to the other aspect, which is if you look at 5G just as a tool to do something, I mean, either if we're going to say we're going to stop the internet, we're going to stop all mobile internet, that's one option. But if we're not, if we're going to still have some kind of mobile internet, I'm playing a bit devil's advocate here, but then shouldn't we have the internet with the best bang for the buck, you know, for the environment, the one that can actually transmit better and most efficiently, which today is certain 5G and tomorrow would be 6G. And then obviously we're, we're stuck in this eternal... We just can't stop, can we? We can't... We- can't stop yep. expanding consumption. Well, to go back to the the pure network discussion, you know, is 5G a good thing or not, which is why we're talking today. Mm-hmm. What's specific about the 5G network is that it's uh, uh, an IP, so internet protocol-based network. So it's basically a network which is intrinsically designed for one-to-one communications uh uh, it has support various broadcast modes, but to go back to your point on TikTok and on the kind of um, influences we're seeing on, on young people and um, not always young people, but people in general, it, it, it's done on a very individual targeted basis. 
Um, and these networks support that kind of streaming where, where, where the server creates, concocts a, a specific uh, stream for each individual user, targeting them. And that's what's also making them so expensive from an environmental perspective. If you go back to broadcast networks, you know, it's much, much cheaper to broadcast, um, but then everybody has to watch the same thing at the same time or have to choose between a few things. So I just want to develop this point a bit is in our future, when we say, you know, 85% of the internet is, is video, video is at least high definition and now more and more 4K and some people talking about 8K. Um, do we, do we actually, as users all need to have our individual access at all times to be able to watch a Netflix within less than a second of pressing play. I'm actually enjoying my Netflix or my, my Amazon Prime or whatever it may be, uh, BBC iPlayer. Literally, it takes less than a second for videos to start nowadays. Remember the early days of the internet? It would typically take 10 seconds. We thought that was great at the time. <laughs> now, if it takes more than a second, we complain. We're not happy, and that's that's what people wrongly call video latency, that's delay, startup start delay. But if we were prepared to have less individual stuff, more communal stuff, which we could actually then sure, share and talk about, if when we did have individual stuff, we were prepared, let's say one thing we could do, that networks could be completely redesigned and, and, and consume a lot less power, um, say a really, really popular content comes out, you know, Game of Thrones season nine or whatever, they, they relaunch it and, you know, half the planet want to watch it at the same time. Um, we could say to people, well, actually, there's so many of you. Um, what we're going to do is it's actually going to be displayed every 10 minutes. So you can watch it on the hour, 10 past, 20 past, 30 past, 40 past. You can't actually watch it whenever you want, but that these are the times you can watch it, like a carousel mode or something. That could save a huge amount of uh, power and, uh, and data in the network. There, there are various things. Then when we did want to watch something purely individual, just for you, uh, just for you, Jerry, you want to watch this. I don't know, play uh, uh, some movie that from the 50s that not many people are watching nowadays, um, maybe then you'd be prepared to to wait for a window in, in half an hour or in a few hours or something. And uh, because there's actually four or five people around the planet that are interested in that film, we'll get them all together and we'll do the, we'll do the broadcast at this time uh, and we'll bring it out of storage. And that's something you know a lot more than I do about, you know, the cloud storage side of things because these, um, this thing could be taken off spinning hard disks and to be put in cold storage somewhere and just brought up for when. So there's lots of things, but then us as users, we would have to accept a different way of interacting with things. You know, are we prepared when you turn your, when, when you get, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you, you bring your phone up because you can't sleep. Uh, it takes the Wi-Fi network in your home five minutes to boot up rather than to be on all the time or to boot up within. 30 seconds, and all that's to save power. I, I was involved with a study with a large European operator last year, and it's funny, these numbers, how they always seem to be the same around the world. This will speak to you as an innovator in the web. There's, there's the idea of the early adopters, um, the laggards, which are the two extreme groups, and then everybody in the middle. Um, and it's like in France, for the for, for access, people... The question for the operator was, are you prepared to, to sign in to some energy saving features, even if it means potentially the services, you know, changing a bit and having to wait longer for your video or something. And so you have 
of the French public who say, yes, of course, immediately, anything that helps save the planet, I will do. You have 20% of people say, screw you. <laughs> I'm only interested in the cheapest possible service that delivers the most features. Anything else you do, I'll go to the competition to get the, the best possible deal. It's not your job to save the planet. It's no, no, don't waste my time. So those two groups, not much point talking to them because they've already made their minds up. Somewhere between uh, 50 and 80% of the typical population who are kind of, aha, uh -huh, so what's this story you're telling me about, uh, about the environment? You mean the way I use the TV or I use my mobile phone could actually help save the planet? Cool. Tell me more. What does it actually mean? Um, explain it to me, maybe. And you can then convince them, cajole them, whether it's a stick, a carrot, whatever you use, those people are accessible and can be can be brought on board. Um, and I think that's what what's ahead of us. That if we do have enough awareness, then the way the markets we live in today, in in, in the Western world at least, the way they're structured, uh, it does seem to be the most efficient way to get change. Is, is that way? There is a general awakening happening. And the simple fact that you, Jerry, invited me, Ben, to talk about this subject today on your podcast, you know, these kind of things wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. You, you said something, Ben, really, well, you said a lot, lots of great things, but I think an incredibly important point, and it, but it comes up in so many areas and in walks of life that um, communal-based design or community-based activities are more energy efficient, more environmentally friendly, uh, use less materials, that it, it flows into design process, it flows into network efficiencies, that in essence, at, at one side, we've got extreme individualism. And extreme individualism is extraordinarily expensive uh, to the climate, to the planet, mm. to materials, to, to you know, it's, extreme individualism is extraordinarily stressful. Uh, to to the environment, particularly when we've got, you know, uh, eight hundred million extreme individuals uh, behaving like in ten percent. They say ten percent of the human population does fifty percent of the damage. Uh, the rich ten percent uh, in in the process. Whereas if we can move back, because we used to be much more communal oriented, to you know, not total communal orientation, but much much more. Uh, community-oriented network design or thinking in in the process, um, we can we can find some very significant savings, whether in energy or uh, material use. And there's there so there's a philosophy that maybe hasn't been properly articulated uh, that that could run with these things as well. I agree a hundred percent. And there's a there's another aspect to the previous point you were saying about um, connectivity and extreme individual extreme individualism. That the kind of always on the, this desire we see it in young people, and we say, "Oh, poor young people," but then we realize we're not that much better. Uh, my my um, my mother is eighty six, and she's not completely hooked to her phone, but sometimes her phone will get in the way of a conversation I'm having with her. So it can happen to people at all ages, but there is something community, a stronger community, a more vibrant community kind of counteracts that. And so it's a kind of not just a minor side effect, it's a major secondary effect of 
uh, a deeper community spirit is, is that I would find that um, talking about, you know, I need to watch my Netflix series now and I'm going to be unhappy if I can't. It's very extremely individualistic, whereas a part of a community spirit in general, it would seem less important to me if I had a vibrant community around me and then I wanted to go home and watch something that would kind of be a, an order of magnitude less important to me. And if I did then have to wait or I had less choice, that would be fine with me. Another, yeah, that you've put your finger on as well. And that, that is uh, speed and slowness. And we see these movements, um, uh, fascinating uh, Italian um mining expert he's spent 30 years in mining Pietro Jar uh, is his name I talked to a couple episodes ago but he's now got focused uh, on digital waste and e-waste and things like that and in Italy or internationally he started uh, what he's calling the slow web movement and we see the slow food movement uh, you know that slowing down because uh, from from a, a physics point of view speed after a certain point uh, is is exponentially more energy and material intense than you know sl- slower but once you go beyond a certain level of speed you begin to uh, really raise demands materially and energetically uh, exponentially at a at a far far greater level so maybe that there's something in the extreme individual wants things extremely quickly, but the more communal orienting is saying, well, let's watch this together. And okay, we'll watch it on Friday night at at eight o'clock. And, you know, so there's, there's something in this movement back to a more communal sense that is, is not just good for the spirit but is is good for material use is good for energy use yeah. is 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 in general good uh, for the environment so moving back and I'm summing up to some degree but moving back to a more communal orientation and to a slower way of life and how can technology support that some of what you're saying for me seems kind of a little bit midterm um that we've got a few steps to take before we're in that space where community might compensate for other things. So I haven't, I can turn this around to another question for you, uh, Jerry is in, I, I work in several organizations, one including called the greening of streaming, and we're working on, you know, how to improve streaming globally. And in that we've had some really interesting talks about, what do we do in 2023? You know, what can we offer services today? And do we have, we call it a green button or a golden button approach? We could try and convince a company like Netflix to offer a green button. That would mean you'd, you'd select it in the, in the parameters somewhere. And, and by default, perhaps your streams would take a bit longer to launch. They might sometimes be lower resolution because you're basically opting in to try and help save the planet. By, by there is this gold button say well actually no I, i've got all my best mates here this is a special occasion i want to watch this rugby match in the best possible resolution i don't you know bring it all up to the max this is a special party occasion which is legitimate i mean mm-hmm. uh, otherwise we'll never use any carbon for everything and we'll go and just live back in the trees um so so then there must be a legitimacy occasionally for, for doing things on networks that that, that use energy uh, but you'd have to specifically opt in. So, so 
What do you feel about that, Jerry? Opt-in yeah. versus opt-out? The, the concept of making people aware that this is physical, you know, because one of the biggest things that has happened is the disconnection between humans and their environment and that, you know, we, we don't pick up a phone and think, hey, this is 70 materials. We just, you know, we want to, we don't, we don't see or feel the sense that what we're doing has an impact somewhere else. And if, if we can be made aware, as you, you said, that group, that's the 50 to 80% potentially mm. of an audience. If we can be educated and made aware that, hey, if you do it this way, uh, uh, do you want slow delivery? Oh, slow. De well, slow delivery uh, is, you know, it's better for the environment because, um, you know, there's less fuel used, the driver's less stress, uh, there's less stock. You explain what it is, you know, th that, and it's good. It's, you know, th these, whereas, you know, fast delivery uh, is, you know, you mightn't even open it, but it'll be, it'll be, much more wasteful in the process and maybe we don't call it slow delivery I don't know maybe people no no I don't maybe that's green delivery even though like the word but that that is so abused at this mm. at this point in time but the sense of reconnecting people to their that their behaviours have consequences that the cloud is on the ground the cloud is somebody else's computer you know that you know but whereas most of us today have just totally disconnected from our use behaviors and finding clever ways to reconnect our our use behaviors to a sense of consumption of material or waste of material or otherwise i think that's i think that's an essential way uh, to to go I just had this click of different ideas, you know, talking about society realizing things, the people like you and me picking up new meanings. If you think about, say, tobacco, you know, realizing that tobacco is bad for health and something that we kind of knew it, started knowing it in the 60s, but it took like the tobacco industry managed to keep it hidden for 50 years uh, before it really became general knowledge. That was amazing. Then with global warming, you know, sort of the various interested parties managed to keep the doubt. Is there such a thing as global warming or is it just, you know, is it just nonsense for some scientists? They managed to keep the doubt for perhaps about 30 years. Um, so this isn't the same, of course, because we're not talking about some evil Machiavellian thing, but the idea to bring to, to, to society to realize what actually us as individuals, you know, one of the things that I believe I don't know if it's the oil industry or what, which components, but have kind of said once they lost the battle that global warming was actually happening, you know, and they put up all sorts of, um, scientists, pseudoscientific studies that will actually maybe, you know, 40,000 years ago, we had an even bigger warming and perhaps it's not man after all. Uh, when, when that started failing about 20 years ago, it started working less and less. Um, they reverted to this idea. Well, actually as individuals, there's not much we can do. It's only it's only governments and, and multinational companies that can make a difference. But us as individuals, it's a bit of a you know, it's a waste of time. And 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 how many times did you, Jerry, 
speaking to your aunt or whoever, I'm talking like it in the last 20 years or so, a counter that people were kind of realizing, mm, perhaps we should be doing something. But they had been brainwashed into thinking that it's a waste of time for them to do anything as individuals. Because, you know, recycling, you know, putting two plastic bottles in, in this basket instead of that basket, it's not going to make any difference. And, and, and we were pushed to, to really believe that because there was, there was some active, active lobbying and active, um, stuff going on there. And it's a bit the same we're talking about here, that the the idea we're talking about 5G, is 5G good or bad? My, my conclusion is still not clear, but it's for us as a society, it's the individuals in a society which can make a difference. If the take-up of 5G corresponds to, to a pace and, and, and the operators and the service providers realize that people actually care and are noticing uh, and might be okay to follow 5G if 5G is used for the positive sides, we said it's a more powerful tool. So all the good things that networks, though, it will do better. But all the wasteful things and the bad things, like, you know, uh, influencing those teenage girls that you were talking about, it will be able to do better. Whether 5G is good or bad will depend less on the big industry players than on ordinary people, the way we use it, uh, the way it's taken up. If you're interested in these sort of ideas, please check out my book, World Wide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com. Thank you for listening.